0: For most of my clients, we make sure that their assets are generally held in an anonymous LLC. So we're going to create a holding company, a management company out of Delaware, Nevada to make sure that there's no connection between their assets and them. So we're creating arm's length separation there. We're also making sure that the documentation is bulletproof if there's anybody else involved. Partnerships, things of that nature, your operating agreements, your buy-sell agreements, your dissolution clauses, we're going to make sure those are bulletproof so that you, as the entrepreneur, you have the best protection with the most flexibility. On the risk management side too, this gets overlooked. Do an insurance audit. Look at your property and casualty. Look at your umbrella. Look at your general comp, your, your general liability, your workman's comp. Like look at those policies and have a professional audit them. Not someone who wants to sell you more. Have a professional audit them
1: to make sure they are in alignment with your net worth. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation. And I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies. And you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. I'm your host, Jake Harris. Today I have Claudio Gambin from Orlando, Florida, actually from, by the way of Brazil, he moved to this country early, uh, or at least his parents did. I don't think when he was six years old, he was moving uh, by himself, but his parents moved him. And he he tells a little bit of that immigrant story that I've heard over and over and over. A lot of my friends are immigrants and they come to America for the land of opportunity and how some of those, you know, dark times of trying to figure things out, not knowing the language, and then ultimately leveraging that into layers of success how there were some really dark times with some health issues and, and with his wife and uh, a cancer diagnosis that was a fatal kind of diagnosis that they were able to kind of fight back for and how that unlocked the next level, the chapter or the 3.0 version of himself So listen to some of those nuggets, but also you're thinking about this or listening to this about some of the financial advices. He gives some great tips and tricks around people that are coming into what may be the potential recession and how to bolster your balance sheet, drive vision, and do you know, the three things that he's seeing industry on top of industry of people that have success and that have done previously thrived versus survived a recession. So look for those tips and tricks in this episode of Passive Wealth Principles. Claudio, my man, it is awesome to have you on the show today. Uh, You talk super nerdy financial stuff. And actually, I was reading some of these things that you were doing and I was just like, wow, that's super cool. I need to talk to that guy. I need to know more about that because I tend to be a you know, uh, a decent financial, you know, awareness. And you're talking about things that I have no idea, never even heard of. Tell (laughs) me (laughs) more. (laughs) So uh, what I'd like to do before we get straight into like nerdy financial talk and, and how asset protection and risk management and portfolio management and other things like that, I'd like to just start out to give some context. One, partly for me as well is, is Uh, take some time to go through your kind of backstory, go through your backstory and tell, tell uh, the audience and the members what brought you to this financial guru status, um, you know, and then where are you located in the world? Yeah, man,
0: absolutely. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's always a, it's always such a pleasure to be a part of uh, any, anybody that we like any respected individuals podcast. Like, you know, sometimes I still pinch myself. I'm like, these people want to hear what I have to say like I, I don't know like you, you I've been working in this industry for 14 years and I don't know it's it's such an honor and, and super humbling to just have the opportunity to kind of you know say what you have to say and kind of preach your message per se so I really appreciate you having me on um I'll, I'll kind of give you both chapters of my life right I think I'm on chapter three but chapter one I'm an immigrant my parents were born in Brazil I was born in Brazil and I moved here when I was six years old I moved to Orlando Florida which is where I still live today. So I lived in Orlando, Florida, pretty much my whole life. And uh, we grew up a really, really humble lifestyle. You know, because my parents, the way I look at this is they they moved here from Brazil, kind of gave up everything. And I still can't fathom this because my kids today are the age that I was when they came here. So gave up their jobs, gave up their friends and family and kind of moved away from everything they knew just so my sister and I, who were six and nine at the time, had the opportunity for a better life, right? So I I love to preach the immigrant message because I think the United States of America is is the most amazing country in the world. And if you're willing to uh, do what it takes and not make excuses and own your choices, you can really become whatever you wanna be. And that's my first chapter in my life was was kind of overcoming poverty because my dad was a college educated engineer. My mom was a, a college professor, but when they moved here, that didn't apply. Right. 1994, they were uh, my dad was a taxi cab driver and my mom cleaned hotel rooms in the day and clean homes at night just to put food on the table. So we grew up in, in a very poor kind of poverty uh, style, lifestyle. So growing up you know, without any real uh, abundance, which um, really instilled in me this drive. And I tell my parents today all the time. You know i'm sure going through that process was super hard and very difficult to watch their kids not have anything like i, I actively remember my parents having to make a decision between buying bread or milk right because we could, simply could not afford both and you know living as a family of four in a, in a 600 square foot apartment in the worst part of town at that time was hard but today it's the best gift i've ever gotten from anybody, and I and I think whenever we're going through hard times, it's so easy to just get stuck in the moment and not realize that that's probably one of the better gifts you're ever going to get in your life, so that you can shift perspective. And the funny part was, Jake, is this neighborhood that I that I lived in? It's called Pine Hills. It was on the edge of one of the nicest neighborhoods in Orlando, Florida. It's called Windermere. I'm sure people have heard of it. There's a famous community here called Isleworth, where Tiger Woods lived before the scandal, right? So, I mean, we were like a half a mile away from that. So you have like massive opulence and then complete and total poverty. And again, by no, um, just no accident, I don't believe in any accidents in life, but. I was put in that place in the earth so that I could live a very low scarcity style lifestyle, but watch people with opulence and abundance. And for a lot of individuals that can drive them to an anger or poor me kind of a mentality, but for some reason, that's not where I went for me. It was, that's, what's possible. Like that is what is possible. And and I never stayed inside of the bounds, even growing up of just because I am this, I can't be that. So growing up, chapter one for me was kind of defining moment of uh, trying to identify who I am as a human and what I'm worth, because if I listen to the messages of my neighborhood growing up, I'm worth nothing and I'm only as good as this neighborhood will ever be. You know, so, so my parents gave me the best opportunity and they gave me the opportunity to figure it out. And that's what me and my sister did. You know, today, my sister is a vice president at Lockheed Martin, a very, you know, fortune 500, fortune 100 company. And we have a, you know, an eight figure business that would likely be in the nine and 10 figures in, in the next five years. So, you know, that, that's chapter one, just so you can kind of guys can get some perspective on, on where I came from. Chapter two was the start of my professional life, kind of going through college was a little bit rough for me. Graduating high school was a little bit rough. I was part of a a not so great high school system, but we made it through, graduated college or graduated high school, got into college. And it's kind of funny because uh, it took me seven years to get through college. And I was not the most academically astute individual and it's because when I interview sometimes, I interview some employees today and, and we're talking and I'm like, oh, yeah, I went to school for seven years, too. And often I get, though, oh, what did you get your master's in? I'm like, no, 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 I, I didn't get my master's. It just took me seven years to get my bachelor's. But again, nothing happens on accident. That was designly created for me because uh, in my seventh year, I ran out of money and they would not give me any more student loans. And I had no choice but to either not graduate or I could then go find an internship that would pay me and would give me the credits, right? So I landed an internship with a financial services company, a fortune 100 financial services company, which was going to pay me a hundred dollars a week for a semester, which at that time I was like, yeah, I'm rich. Like I'll do, I can, I can do anything I want for hundred bucks a week. And at the end of it, I got three credits, which is all I needed to graduate. And that's how I got my foot in the door in the financial services world. And, um, I, kind of established my footing inside the door there. And we were just really a sales organization, right? If you guys have ever met anybody new in the financial services space, whether it's your your life insurance policies or your mutual funds, like they're not there to give you advice. They're, they're probably there to sell you something because they got to figure out a way to eat. Um, and that was me. And three years in, so this is 2009. By 2012, I have found some pretty great success. Uh, even early on, I was leading the organization and um, decided at that moment in time, like, I'm going to do this for myself. Like, I, I don't think I need to be doing this for anybody else because the framework's great, but I'm not in their sandbox anymore. So in 2014, we kind of branched into kind of our own organization inside of that big company. So I wanted to have the safety and stability of a big firm while still having the, the creativity to be able to build what I wanted to build. And you know uh, that's when things just really started to take off. And when I say started to take off, is we started down the roller coaster ride of entrepreneurship, right? Like today it was great. Tomorrow I'm losing it all, right? Like the the constant up and down of entrepreneurship. But it's 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 three steps forward, two steps back, and we're slowly making momentum. And in 2019, we sold that organization for a big number. So uh, I you know I had the opportunity to kind of build an organization. And, and kind of exit. We also uh, had the opportunity to, in the process, really identify who I really, tr- truly love to work with. And I hired a coach in 2014 uh, who I still work with. His name is Ben Newman. I'm not sure if you guys have ever come across Ben Newman, but he is uh kind of an expert at helping uh, individuals from a mindset perspective really clearly identify who they are and what they are really made of. Uh, I thought I had tapped out on my potential and he kind of showed me that I had three more gears and a lot more left in the tank and that's what we went after. But one exercise he helped me do changed my career and my financial path for the rest of my life. He said, Claudio, I want you to take out your list of clients and I want you to make two lists. I want you to identify the clients who you made the most amount of money with. Like, who are the individuals who you had the largest profits, largest sales? So I made that list. And he said, okay, I want you to make another list. And I want you to identify the clients, regardless of the the financial side, who did you have the most fun? Who did you find the most joy in working with? And I created a list. And Jake, it was almost an identical list, right? Because the people that I was truly impacting, I was having the most fun working with, were actually taking my advice, were actually implementing, which then created the best possible results. And that individual turned out to be an like an avatar that we created, which is a uh, stage two growth oriented business owner, right? Like that's who we ultimately landed on. So in 2015, we did what I think is one of the scariest things you can do in business: is we we started to niche. And we started to say no to the wrong individuals. So we have the opportunity to say yes to the right individuals. And uh, that's when the concept for me of, of really taking an intentional approach to your time and margin really started to sink in. So anyway, so that's kind of my history. And, and as I started working with, with entrepreneurs, I started learning of new strategies and researching new strategies and working through new strategies on the asset protection side, right? Because most entrepreneurs... Uh, they're risk takers by nature. They they put it all on the line, right? They put all their eggs in one basket because they are their best bet. And we have to protect their foundation. So we started creating and and researching and and really working on some really high level asset protection strategies because if anything ever went wrong, at their fault or not, they needed to be able to have a good place to start from again. So that was one. We started getting really effective on the tax planning and tax strategy side of things because no matter who you are, Uncle Sam is your biggest business partner, right? He's taking a percentage of your business regardless, but you get to control what that is. It could be 35%, it could be 40%, it could be 20%. You have the tools in front of you. It's laid out. It's called the IRS code. It's laid out in front of you. The roadmap on how to reduce your partnership with Uncle Sam is there. So we started becoming experts at explaining and implementing those strategies, right? Cause the IRS code is like a completely different language to most people. We were deciphering that to business owners and then helping them implement. Because if I could save them some money on taxes, there's more money left over at the bottom line for them to reinvest, hire, get market share, grow talent. They can really grow their business. What better way for them to hit their target than to helping them find more money to achieve that. So we started kind of doubling down on these strategies balance sheet strengthening, cash flow mapping. We then started encountering some clients who were successful and they wanted to exit. So we had to become experts at building out succession and exit strategies. And when we sold the firm in 2019 and we kind of exited that space, I did it because I wanted to kind of take on the next chapter of my career. You know, at the time I was, uh, what what was that, three years ago? So I was 33 years old. I I thought I was going to be able to really slow down. I took about six days off. Before I was completely bored out of my mind. And um, my wife was like, you need to get out of the house. And we kind of started it all over again. But instead, I, I wanted to kind of switch the model. Because the one aspect of a financial advisor and the wealth management firm that we ran then that I didn't love was the aspect of compensation, right? It, it was really difficult to be able to uh, work with the client on a very specific strategic advice and charge for that advice without them having to buy a product from you or invest money with you. And I'm sure a lot of the, your audience, if they're in the entrepreneurial space and they have a financial advisor or, or a financial advisor is knocking on their door to work with them, um, there's a big disparity in understanding uh, between the priorities of a business owner and the priorities of a financial advisor. And that disparity is around what to invest in. A financial advisor does a great job, but they make money by getting you to take money and invest in their solutions, which may be in your best interest. And it probably is, but depending on the individual that directly contradicts with their ability to achieve their visions in business, right? So like if I want, let's just say I I own a car dealership and I have liquidity, I need to invest back into inventory and staff and building my organization. And if I take money out of that to put into a wealth management portfolio, am I getting myself closer or further away from my vision? And that, that's a big disparity between understanding. And you know, from an industry standard perspective, there's very few financial advisors that succeed in working specifically with business owners because of that. So that's that's what we started doubling down on, so when we started GFG Solutions in twenty nineteen, it was built off of an advice model for a flat fee, not a sales model, and that just kind of took off. It was kind of a refreshing a take to the industry. We were trailblazing a new path to your financial advisor model because today when I work with clients, I say, hey, Um, let's learn about you. Let's create the strategic initiatives. And then here's my fee. Like here's my cost to help you implement these strategic initiatives. Oh, by the way, if you need these products along the way, yeah, that's, that's easy to solve, but the strategy is what we're here for. So long winded answer, but I wanted to kind of give you the history.
1: No, there's, there's a a ton of nuggets in that, and, and I really appreciate the, you know, uh, the chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, that makes a, a lot of sense to me. I, I wanted to actually go back to that as far as, you know, so you mentioned your kids. So your kids are kind of six and nine or somewhere around there. What's that? What's the age that you came into this country? So what was that like? Because and I, and the reason I ask is I have kids that are eight five and, you know, uh, 15 months old, uh, you know, and so it was like, they're aware of stuff. They're aware of their surroundings. They're aware of what's going on where they live. And so what was that like moving from Brazil to Orlando? Like, you know, go back to that initial time when you moved to this country. Cause I, I, I would assume that it is a massive, yeah. um, you know, disruption to your, your, your norm.
0: Again, Kind of a dark time right in my life because at six i protested it like hell but well, like i didn't want it i didn't understand it you know i remember my parents telling me like just they suffered at the aspect of how i would uh treat the entire experience but when we were here right my parents made a decision and they followed through with that decision and we were here i had to learn to shift and it was subconscious like i didn't have a choice the the biggest part, which I look back and it's kind of funny now, it's a culture shift. It's such a massive culture shift. You know, I didn't speak the language. I didn't speak English. I did not know anybody. We didn't understand the systems, like the very basic principles. And this is kind of what boggles my mind, Jake. And I still can't wrap my head around it. And I talk to my parents about this all the time. And I don't think they've even wrapped their heads around this. It's like, okay, so you pack all your shit and luggage and you get in a plane and you land, and you land at MCO, right? Orlando International. And you get off the plane and you probably have a hotel room that you're going to go to. But like, then what? You know, like the concept of leasing an apartment, they don't know. that there's, like, there's so many logistical features to this. That as a planner, like I freak out and maybe that's why I'm a planner. Maybe that's like what's ingrained in me is like laying shit out for me and my clients. But like, where do you go to buy groceries? The grocery system in Brazil is totally different than the grocery system here. How do you sign a lease? Where do you live? How do you buy a car? Like all these very basic questions. And then, oh, by the way, you have to figure all this out without speaking English. But here's a kind of an interesting story. The first place we rented was an apartment that was on a golf course, Okay, which to me was like, holy shit, like we're rich, right? Like we're on a golf course. There's 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 a yard. Right. In Brazil, I remember, there was everything was concrete. There was no yard. And I didn't understand the game of golf. I didn't I couldn't figure out as a seven year old at the time, like why someone would hit a ball with a stick hundred yards away and then go chase it with a golf cart and then hit it again and keep doing it for 18 holes. Like to me, that was like, what are you doing? So I thought I'll be helping them out. So I would wait in the fairway with my bicycle and they would hit their shot. I would go and grab their ball and run it back to them and like completely ruin their game. And I was thinking I was doing them a favor. Hopefully I was going to get a couple of bucks, but they would just like, start yelling at me. And, and like, that's a really light lightweight of showing an example of like a complete culture shock. Right. Like I just, I didn't, I can't even explain how much of a culture shock it was so much so that I actually don't have many memories from seven to 12. Like, I'm not sure if you do, I'm 36 years old. My wife, she's 34. She's got very clear and specific memories from seven to 15. And I have maybe one or two.
1: That's, that's interesting. And and the reason I, I say that is I think in general, the self-discovery, the self-improvement uh, space is lends itself to entrepreneurship. And actually, when I look at that and I hear your story is, your parents and and, you know, maybe you having to be the byproduct of living through that is you don't know what you don't know. And so you just get into it and have to figure a lot of shit out on the fly. And so, and that's what I I love and are, you know, why I have a lot of friends that are immigrants because they have this entrepreneurial, like just figure stuff out. I don't know how I'm going to do anything. I just showed up into the country. Um, So, you know, and, you know, we could spend a lot of time. This whole episode could actually be about the immigrant mentality because I think this is, uh, to, to be honest, I think Americans are soft and, uh, you know, but I wanted to figure out like, uh, why Orlando, um, and, and not like South Florida, like where everybody else, cause I know, cause I did grad school at FIU. And so I was like, Brazilians aplenty in South Florida, and maybe they are in Orlando as well. I just haven't spent very much time there. So how did they pick Orlando and all of that uh, deciding to move to the country?
0: I don't know. I think it's because like where Disney world is and like, you know, if you're in Brazil and you think Disney world, everybody's rich, right? Like I I, I honestly don't know why Orlando, but that's where we came. (laughs) There is a large Brazilian population here in Orlando uh, so I'm sure that had something to do with why Orlando, uh, but yeah, no, no rhyme or reason. I think it's more like throw a dart on the map and that's where we're going.
1: <laughs> that's, that's interesting. And 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 now I see why, like you said, being a planner, why that could absolutely be something that you're like, Hey, like this weirds me out. I need to have structure. I need to have, and you know, from A to B to C so that I understand Um, Which is interesting because you got into entrepreneurship and it was like, maybe it is to pay homage to your parents. Maybe it is to, you know, I don't know. I think I'm going through a lot of stuff right now where I'm reading a lot of books on, on loving, conscious loving and how some of our childhood kind of programming repeats in our behaviors into the future that we have no idea. What was our confirmation bias? Why do we do the things that we do? And so you're going around and looking at that and be like, Oh, that's why I do that. Oh, that's why I do that.
0: It's wild. It it, that really is true. And and, you know, I think a lot of people think entrepreneurship is a lack of structure, and I think it's probably the most uh, amazing kind of structure because I think structure uh, you can create it for you, or it creates you. So I have some really good friends who work at some really big Fortune 100 companies. And their structure is created for them. They don't really have a choice, right? Someone tells them what to do, how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, and why to do it. And that's their structure. But as an entrepreneur, I get to create my own structure, period. And I think there's just two kinds of humans out there in in this space. You're either going to choose that structure or you're going to choose someone to choose a structure for you. But, you know, you can't live without it. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs think about the risk aspect of coming to it. And there is no structure, but that's probably the most backwards way of thinking. Like in the entrepreneurial space, I get to define my structure. And early on, my structure was 24, seven, 365 days a year. That was my structure. Like I, I do what I have to do. And then as you continue to build brick upon brick of your success, you get to define your structure and really identify kind of where the value is. So like when I did that study with Ben Newman, like I get to build, I, I built my structure around my perfect avatar and how to find that client, how to serve that client, and how to keep that client. That's amazing structure, right? And, and in all reality, you know, you, you, you nailed it on the head. It's also part of paying homage to my parents. Like I, my number one goal starting off wasn't, I want to make money it was i want to retire my parents i want to retire the two individuals who you know have worked three lifetimes worth of hours just to make it happen and then 2016 got it done they're both retired on my payroll they will never stop getting paid for the rest of their lives they live great lives and they get to rest and then you got to figure out what's next right like you get to your first why as an entrepreneur and then you go okay What's my why now? What's my burn? Like what's, what's, what's kind of getting me going. And, and there's more to that story, but it's all part of that structure conversation. So a couple things we're going to get a little deep here and I don't mind. Cause that's just kind of how I am. I don't have, I don't have room for, for shallowness in life. It just in the, it, like in the nature of events. Okay. I retired my parents in in the summer of 2016, no, it was the summer of 2015. And from, from July ish of 2015 through the end of the year, I was completely lost, Jake. Like, I have no reason to get up early in the morning. I'm an incredibly disciplined individual. One of my gifts and my incredible talents is doing what I say I'm going to do. I live with tremendous guilt if I don't. So I'd rather just do it. But I was lost. I wasn't, uh, my discipline was like out the window. I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't really kind of tap into that extra gear on the day-to-day on the grind. I was super lost. Um, and it wasn't until my wife got pregnant, and you know we were trying, so we were, we were going to have our first kid, uh, that I started to really think through like beyond me, like beyond just tomorrow, because like it, it, you know to be true, like retiring my parents was a great superficial goal that solved an external circumstance, but it, it will never define uh, my internal conclusion of myself, right? Because I was trying to retire my parents so that I didn't feel poor anymore. And after doing that, I realized that I still felt poor. Because growing up poor, you always, and if you have or if you have any audience members that have, like the one thing that you carry growing up in poverty is that you never leave it. Like it is always a fear that you will go back to that. And that's an internal conclusion that even today I'm still working out. But when my wife got pregnant, it no longer became about me solving my poverty problem. It became solving my family and my grandkids poverty problem. Like if I can't solve the internal conclusion for myself, I sure as hell am not going to solve the conclusion for them, Right. And look, I haven't figured it all out. And one of the things that keeps me up at night is the fact that I probably won't be giving them the same gift I got, right. The gift of figuring it out. So I think through synthesizing hardship in my kids' lives all the time. And I haven't been able to do that because, you know, they're your kids, (laughs) but like that, that is, that was what happened in the the early stages of 2016 when uh, my wife was pregnant with Coco and, you know, boy, that, that summer, My wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer and talk about like a really quick snap, wake up call to life, because when you're poor and you grow up in poverty, money solves all problems. At least the perception is money solves all problems. And that's what I was working towards. I was working towards money solving every problem in my life, right? Well, guess what? When she got sick, there was no amount of money that could fix that. And I had a good amount of the time and I poured everything I could into it. You know, so she had spinal cord cancer. She was uh, eight months pregnant when we found it. And man, it was, uh, again, another really dark period of my life. And she 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 fucking fought it and she beat it. And she's still around today. And we've got three beautiful girls and uh, six, three and, and six months. But brother, that is the... Uh, that is a wake up call that I hope never, no, nobody ever gets because that internal conclusion got fast passed. I mean, it, it was, it was a quick realization that I, I could have had 1 million or a hundred million and I wasn't saving that. And it was, it was the miracle and it was by the grace of God that she's here today and some incredible, incredible doctors, you know, and, and I was also forced to focus on other aspects of my life. Because when, you know, when she came out of surgery, she was paralyzed from the waist down. And, you know, that, again, this is going to sound super materialistic and selfish, but at the time I had three sports cars. You know, I lived in a beautiful house and it was just her and I, Ferrari, Lamborghini, and a boat. Well, with a paralyzed wife, you can't have that shit. Right? It was like, the first call I made was from my business partner in the car world. And I said, hey, I need a minivan. And your priorities shift really quick. Anyway, so she, she's better. She's no longer paralyzed. She walks. She can't feel her feet very well, which is great for when we go to the beach. She gets to go out and get the hot sand first. And she no longer complains about walking out in heels. So, you know, uh, it's all good. It's, it's, all, it's all good now. But that, again, just to answer your question in a very long-winded way, I, I had to figure out that shift. You know, man, um, I believe dark times... Are crucial in growth, right? Like you can't have um, from from the gap and the gain by Dan Sullivan. I'm not sure if you've read it, but badass book uh, for those listening. You can't have tens without ones, right? And that was a series of ones. We both agree that that was the best thing that's ever happened to us as a married couple. You know, because we two days ago, what is today, the 20th, 21st? Yeah, two days ago, we just celebrated 13 years of 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 marriage. And, you know, at that moment in time in life, we had it all wrong, right? Uh, We had, externally speaking, we had it all right. We had the fancy house, the nice cars, the sick vacations. But internally, we were garbage. Uh, And we had it all wrong. And uh, that was a really healthy, unhealthy, I guess I should say, reset to what we were trying to build Right. And so through that wake up call, she actually ended up leaving her career, realigning who she is as a human. And for me, it was also a complete different shift in how and who I wanted to be as an entrepreneur. Okay. Building my business, which kind of plays into exactly what you guys talk about in your podcast. Building my business, I felt was a grit game. The harder I worked, the bigger and better I was going to be. And when that happened, I could be there. And in a matter of six months, my entire business fell apart. Like a house of cards, Jake. Like I didn't own a business. I owned a really good job, right? Like that's it. So when I came out of that in 2017, I was like, Clean everything and stra- just scrap everything. We're starting from scratch. We're now building a business that is beyond me, right? At the time, it was Gambin Financial Group. Today, it's GFG Solutions. I took my name off of the, the, the front door. I didn't want it to be about Claudio Gambin. I wanted to build a business that whether uh, I was around or not, or if, if I did not answer a phone call or an email for six months, it actually probably did better, right? So, yeah, that, that's kind of what changed. You know, it 180 us. It 180 the business. It 180'd my life. It 180'd my family. Um, and, you know, the, the fear of poverty is still there, right? But the fear of not being present is bigger. And I think I've just come to terms that I'm one of those individuals that doesn't chase anything. It runs away from things. You know, I think with motivation, you can either chase something like, oh, I really want a yacht. I'm going to work really hard and get that yacht. Or you can go, I just went through some shit. I don't ever want to be there again. I got to figure out a way to get away from that. I'm that individual. Like I, To me, it's like any the moment in time, we can get bad news again, right? So I better, I, I better be exactly where my feet are as often as I possibly can so that I'm not wasting The most precious resource, right? Our time. So if I'm not building a business that creates passive wealth, if I'm not building a portfolio, a life that allows for passive wealth, decisions that create passive wealth, then I'm just exchanging good moments for profit. That's it. Or shit, maybe I'm even extending bad moments for profits, but either way, I'm giving away minutes for dollars.
1: Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are where can I find good deals to invest into and is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and giveaway VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithan's.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now back to the show, dude. I love that story. I love what the realization that you came to—that you were trading, you know, moments, good, bad, indifferent for money—and. Let's be honest, money's fake. The government probably just gave a really great uh example of why money is fake and you know, figazi figazi it's up it's down, you know, uh whatever, they just made it up. And so the the fact that you you know came to that realization obviously unfortunately it had to be something that you know was as as dire as as your wife's, you know, cancer and you know being pregnant and those other things like that. I mean, I just the the cocktail of emotions that I know that I would go through in that scenario. Um, But you use that for good. You use that for your benefit to then realize. And I think that is so true for so many people is that they get comfortable enough in their job that they don't ever look at like the downside. And so, I mean, maybe this is an opportunity to start diving into that is now what is GFC gfg do now as far as to help those people that exit that hedonic treadmill start you know getting on that same path because great you're making half a million bucks a year you're making a million dollars a year but if you don't spend time with your family you're not living and doing the vacation you stop answering the phone and your business falls apart and and the vast majority of the people that i work with and coach and clients and other things like that are like two paychecks away from having to radically transform their lifestyle if they miss two paychecks. They're in the fancier house and the nicer car and they got the Ferraris or the Mercedes and you know the you know the S class and whatever it is, but it's just like they're just on a bigger treadmill than it was and so there's there's obviously the poverty that you talked about that you're trying to avoid. They're chasing away from the the negative, but then there's also the, I want something nice that you're chasing towards. But sometimes if you don't realize what's really important, you miss life. Fortunately, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, you got the opportunity to look at where life really means. So how do you work through that process of helping? And I'd love to dive into that because it sounded like you had some really cool tools strategies and vision mapping and other things that you're doing that, like you said, is not what most financial advisors do.
0: Yeah, no. And look, I, I think, um, first off, I'm a big believer, like you got to get punched in the mouth. You got to lose it all to realize that you, you actually didn't have anything to begin with. And, and I truly believe that the, the guy earning a W-2 between three and $400,000 a year, that is like the most dangerous place to live because you're just comfortable enough to have stuff that you probably can't afford anyways. And you are right. I mean, I think a lot of individuals are one bad quarter away from just complete collapse, right? And so like my message today, like as nerdy as I can be, like my message today is like, guys, a shit storm is coming, it's coming, right? It's like knocking on our door, trying to get in. You've got to prepare and you don't have to prepare so you can survive this. You've got to prepare so you can thrive through this, right? So like, you know, if anyone gets anything out of today's podcast, I hope it's this specific message. There are three things that companies that thrived through the 2008-2012 mess, okay, which I think is going to be a walk in the park compared to what's coming. There's three things, okay? Three things separated thrivers from survivors. So here's what they are. Companies that thrived through the 2008 mess were incredibly liquid, right? They walked into 2008 with an incredibly strong balance sheet prepared for a downturn, like excited for a downturn. And I'll tell you why. The second thing they did is they eliminated fixed operating expenses that were no longer necessary. Variable expenses is like eating out. It's easy to cut out, okay? Fixed expenses are like leases or employees or uh, structured payments that aren't as easy to clean up. And now is the time to fix that OPEX, right? You got to cut the fat. You got to cut the fat of things you don't need. And my general formula for my clients are, there's revenue that creates profit and there's revenue that supports profit, right? If your money isn't creating more profit or supporting the profit, it goes. If that expense, right? Like, let me use an example. You've got a sports car and the car payment is on the business. That sports car does not create more revenue. That sports car does not support creation of revenue. It got to go, okay? It's painful. It sucks. It's not, it's not exciting, but it's got to go. You've got to prepare your OPEX for this downturn. And the third thing is to stay away from shiny things. Shiny things means new sports cars, new boats, new homes. A lot of people are making more money today than they've ever made. So they're making decisions based on the continuation of making more money than they've ever made, but that will not happen right? There's very few industries that are completely recession proof. And for most individuals, the amount of money you're making last year and this year will no longer be the amount of money you're making next year and the year after, because there is economic shift coming and that will impact your ability to do business. So stay away from shiny things. Other shiny things are investment opportunities. If it's not in your lane or in the lane directly next to you, it probably isn't good an investment opportunity, right? If you're in real estate and there's a real estate deal that's in your lane, if there's a real estate deal, but it's not the sector you're in, but it's close, it's in the lane next to you, it's probably okay, okay? If you are in manufacturing, don't invest in tech, don't go buy a restaurant, stay in your lane and stay away from shiny things because in downturns, there's opportunities and everything looks amazing and the ROI is there and the, what could be so great, no, it can't be. Focus on you. And here's why. The way you grow through economic downturns and what you do to thrive is you pick up two things. You pick up margin and you pick up market share. And through margin and market share is where you grow. And let me explain. As the environment continues to slide, okay, and you follow this formula of building up your balance sheet, kind of building up your liquidity, adding debt to your balance sheet to build up liquidity, get really strong liquidity, okay? as the market slides, your competition is not going to be prepared like you are. And when they're not prepared, they're going to have to make reactive decisions. And when they make reactive decisions, they lose their two most important resources, their talent and their clients. And if they lose their talent, they inevitably will lose their clients. And if you are in a position to grow through a downturn, there will be market share, i.e. clients for you to get, and talent for you to serve that market share. 12 months ago, it was impossible to hire, right? 12 months from now, there's going to be people knocking on your door, hopefully for a job. And I'm not hoping to be a doom and gloom guy. I'm just calling it like it is. It's going to shift. And I just want you to be prepared. I just want you to know how to prepare yourself because your competition isn't going to survive this. And who's going to serve those clients if you're not?
1: I love this advice. Uh, I call it, and actually, I, I'm working on a uh, second book, and it, I'm titling this as a, as a chapter in it, in exactly what you said: FOMO to MOFO. So, part of it is the fear of missing out to a modern family office is like once you start hitting, and you know, let's let's say you have $10 million in net worth, like you know, FOMO is a real thing, or you're making a million dollars a year, like you like shiny objects come at you. And and I wrote about this in my blog. It's like, I don't know if you've watched the movie, the matrix when Neo first discovers he's getting behind the thing. There's a woman in a red dress walking by and he kind of like, Hmm, checking out the, 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 the attractive, uh, woman in the red dress. Well, the reality is, is like that keeps coming up and it gets, she gets more attractive. The more money you make, these, these opportunities get more and more attractive. And so at first it might be $10,000 deals. It's a hundred thousand dollar restaurant. But now what about when it's a million dollar manufacturing business? Or what about when it's this tech company that's just, a, you know, guaranteed slam dunk 10 X, you know, kind of thing. And then you're like, wow, I should do that. But I love that advice that you said, like stay in your lane because that's the big thing I advise to a lot of people too, is if you're making half a million or million dollars a year, use that, that moat that you've built up, even if it is being in a W2 job, you need to leverage that cash, you know, generating position for as long as possible until you've completely replaced it in another lane, like trimming your expenses, taking that so you can invest. $100,000, $200,000, $500,000 a year, but then not only that, you might just have it sitting on the side and being prepared to deploy that capital. And if it's alternative investments or distress funding or anything else, but it's like making sure to, to, to be disciplined and play your game. That's a big thing that when we sold some portfolios to Blackstone of some houses, I didn't understand what they were doing because it made no sense to me at the time because they were buying assets for more than they were worth in the current environment. And I was just like, this doesn't make sense because they were playing a different game. They were basing it off of previous peak prices. They were very liquid. They're deploying billions of dollars in cash because they're like, we're buying everything for pennies on the dollar. My business model it would not have worked because I was not capitalized to then hold these assets for 10 years. So that's the other thing I see as a big error that people go, well, Blackstone's doing it. I want to do it. Claudio's doing it. So I should do that. You know, part of it is like, you don't know the backstory. You don't know the business model. And that's why you need to play your own game. You need to make sure that you institute your business plan, your business strategy. And like, here's what I'm doing. This is why it makes sense. And even if it is sometimes in a new arena. Cause there's a lot of opportunity that you see, but I was like, have a, your business plan and execute that not speculating, not throwing stuff. Just, you know, unfortunately, that's how a lot of entrepreneurs exist is just throw shit at the
0: wall. Stay in your lane or in the lane next to you. It's what you already know. It's what you're an expert at. Your ROI will be better, right? You don't have to waste profit on education. Because if you go invest in a restaurant, as an example, and you've never been in the restaurant business, you're going to pay a big tuition. So unless you're willing to do that, don't do that. No matter how sexy it is, no matter how pretty that girl in the red dress is.
1: So, how, what are some of the things I'd like to get some some you know nuggets strategy that you do and where you're seeing kind of that low hanging fruit as far as for people with maybe their tax planning their estate planning or something like that, that maybe gives some of those low hanging fruits to free up some additional cash flow to, to generate or get more liquidity. Cause again, like you said, I, I love that a, a example of uncle Sam's your partner, whether you know it or not uh, he is, and he wants as much money as possible. And the IRS code is let's, let's jump into tactical. open. It's to interpretation, right? In, in the tactical space,
0: here's what I would do. Risk management, I need you guys as an entrepreneur, right? Or if you're a W-2 going into entrepreneurship, like get really focused on your foundation. How you own your assets, where you own your assets will change the game. So for example, for most of my clients, we make sure that their assets are generally held in an anonymous LLC. So we're going to create a holding company, a management company out of Delaware, Nevada, to make sure that there's no connection between their assets and them. So we're creating arm's length separation there. We're also making sure that the documentation is bulletproof if there's anybody else involved. Partnerships, things of that nature, your operating agreements, your buy-sell agreements, your dissolution clauses. We're going to make sure those are bulletproof so that you, as the entrepreneur, you have the best protection with the most flexibility. Okay. On the risk management side too, this gets overlooked. Do an insurance audit. Look at your property and casualty. Look at your umbrella. Look at your general comp, your, your general liability, your workman's comp. Like look at those policies and have a professional audit them. Not someone who wants to sell you more. Have a professional audit them to make sure they are in alignment with your net worth. And if you have an umbrella policy, make sure it's the right kind with the right value, like depending on the risk structure of your life, right? Like I always make this example. There are umbrella policies. Let's just say you have a boat and your boat's parked at a marina and your boat catches on fire, okay? And that fire spreads to the boat next to you and the boat next to them. So you kill like three boats, four boats, and you have an umbrella policy that's $5 million. You're going to go, I'm good. You can have an umbrella policy that pays $5 million for the entire incident, or you can have an umbrella policy that pays $5 million per asset that was destroyed. You don't want to have the incident one. You want to have the asset-based one. Massive difference in your asset protection plan, right? Because if you have the incident one, two of those three boats, they're not going to get covered, and they're going to sue you, and you're going to have to write a big check. So the right insurance policy, the right insurance structure will change your asset protection game. Most asset protection issues happen from some sort of risk asset. So if you have the right insurance, it's likely to cover your ass in the event of a bad situation. Okay. That's risk management. I hope no one ever has to use that advice, but tax planning, everybody will likely have to use this advice. So, uh, in tax planning, I take a look at tax planning from, from this prioritization. Okay. The way I look at tax planning is I don't look at it from a perspective of how do I pay as little in taxes? Okay. I look at it from the perspective of how do I pay as little in taxes without impacting my ability to grow? Because you can whittle your income to zero and then no bank will touch you. You won't buy real estate. You won't even be able to afford a Honda Civic because your income is so low. And is that truly the best thing for you in your growth pattern? No, I don't believe so. So make sure that you have a really good vision plan and that your tax strategy is a byproduct of that, not the standalone plan. Okay. But when you get there, look at this. Focus on credits first. Identify all credits that are available for you, whether it's employee retention credits, whether it's R&D tax credits, whether it's energy efficient tax credits. Depending on the industry that you're in, there's likely tax credits that you can apply for. If you're in tech, if you're in real estate, if you're in manufacturing, if you're in service, there is some sort of credit incentive built for your industry. Find out what they are. Work with a professional, not a CPA who's going to do your taxes, but with a tax strategist that works on identifying the strategies, okay? So credits are better because they're one-to-one. You have a million dollar tax credit and a million dollar tax bill, it offsets, okay? The next thing that I look at is depreciation because depreciation generally comes with leverage, right? Uh, So depreciation is having an asset and then depreciating the value of that asset. And when you do that, it offsets your income, the most common example here is a G-Wagon. A lot of people want to buy G-Wagons because they can deduct the entire price of the G-Wagon. I'm not going to, I'm going to get into whether that's a good idea or a bad idea because that's a personal choice. Generally speaking, it's a bad idea. But here's, here's how depreciation gets leveraged, right? You go buy a G-Wagon for $200,000. You're not writing a check for it, most likely. You're putting $50,000 down and financing one hundred and fifty. dollars Well, just because you put fifty dollars down... Doesn't mean that's all you get to depreciate. You can depreciate the entire thing. So for $50,000, you get to take off $200,000 off of your income. That's depreciation leverage. That can happen with real estate. That can happen with oil and gas partnerships. That can happen in a lot of different places to really maximize value, okay? That's my second and most favorite kind of tax strategies. Next is deductions. Getting really creative with deductions To make sure that if you are already spending the money, it can be routed through your books in such a way that it becomes a deduction, not just an expense. So, one example here is uh, if you're going to retire your parents like I did, okay? Instead of just writing them a check and then giving them some money, run them through your payroll as a 1099, okay? And then gift them the money on the taxes due for those 1099s. Both sets, deductible. So you can accomplish the task. They can receive the money and you just created a tax benefit. I was going to do that regardless. So I might as well receive a tax benefit for it. And you can get super creative on the deduction space. And then last is your deferral. The reason I've used deferrals last is generally pretty cookie cutter. These are your SEP IRAs, your 401ks, retirement plans of sorts, right? pension strategies, that that sort of stuff doesn't actually save you money in taxes. It just kicks the can down the road. And whenever the IRS gives you something, you're not benefiting, right? They are. They understand that you're not paying taxes. Let's talk 401k for a minute. This is super controversial, but I don't care. Let's just say you put 20 grand into a 401k today and you don't pay taxes on the 20k. That 20k is going to grow to be $500,000 and then you're going to owe taxes on that. The government is doing a better job financially planning than you are. They know their paycheck is coming, and they're just deferring it because they're not stupid about it. And guess what? We're in the lowest marginal tax bracket we have been in the last 100 years. You think taxes are going to go down? So you are deferring low taxes on 20 grand to pay high taxes on 500 grand. Not to mention, and this is probably the biggest cost of it all, is you are losing the opportunity cost on the money. You're putting money in a retirement plan. You can't invest it anywhere else. I mean, there's some stipulations that allow you self-directed, but for the most part, you're kissing that money goodbye. And remember, you're the entrepreneur. You are your best investment. So that's why I keep the furrows last, right? And then I know we're running long today, but hey, we're having fun.
1: No, that's, I, I I love, love rolling with this is like, I think these are, are great tips for people to take some actual, you know, actionable items as far as reach out. I know that that's part of the thing that you do. If it is not you, you know, like, I love what you said as far as, you know, without impacting your ability to grow your tax planning strategy, because, uh, I have done the, uh, you know, where I limited my ability to grow, where they're like, "Oh, you look on paper and be like, we can't give you loans for anything because me too, uh, yeah, like you suck." And <laughs> I was like, "Wait, but uh, and I do make money." And they're like,
0: "No, you didn't."
1: Yeah, and I was like, "No, I make money," but they're like, as far as the banks look at it, and they're like, "No, you have you have the write off. The write off people write things off." Um, but why I
0: love depreciation because most of the time it gets added back right? Yeah. So, Like you get the tax benefit, but you don't lose out on the ability to borrow. Yeah. So,
1: No. And that's, yeah. You know, and that's obviously we can, you know, dig into that as, as well. And I think we may even have to have like a, a part two of this where we just go into like nerdy, you know, that was kind of part of the plan. I actually loved hearing your story more so. And I think that is so exciting to hear the, the, the way that you've kind of faced some of these Critical moments. I wouldn't say. I know you use the word dark, but I was like, I don't necessarily think that they're dark because I think it 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 showed you, you know, towards the path of light, showed you towards you know greater amounts of love, and so you know there is dark and but in light and they they coexist. There's a book um, called Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill that didn't get released until recently, and it is everything is both positive and negative. It is however you interpret it. And we have as humans, the ability to rewrite you, you mentioned Dan Sullivan, Dan Sullivan is, is, is fantastic at this is like, you have the ability to rewrite the script of the, of your own story in your own head. And like, nobody else knows your story. You gave us a version of it on this podcast, which I'm very excited to hear. and, And I feel even more connected hearing that to you, but it's like, you'd know, all of those things, and I bet you if we dig dig deeper, that seven, twelve, you know, year old kind of version of Claudio has a lot more memories that maybe have been pushed down uh, in there. So, but I mean, the past
0: is only how you choose to create it in your head, right? Like that perspective is your choice. So, you know, we can certainly continue on the nerdy stuff, and the other thing I would say too, like just on the nerdy stuff. Sorry to kind of switch gears here, but I wanted to make sure that the audience got this. Um, to build your balance sheet, partner with the right with the right people. It doesn't come from just you not buying Starbucks coffee anymore. Right? Yes, you can build your liquidity, stop spending money, but identify areas in your life that you can create some very effective debt. So like for example, just high level like home equity lines of credit, unsecured line, lines of credit like Go secure some debt in today's environment, and don't spend it, right? Like, and even as the the banking system starts to really suffer, some of those debt, some of those lines will be called. Like, it'll cost you a little bit of money, but go get the cash out. Like, I have an unsecured line of credit that is entirely tapped out, and the money is sitting in a treasury bill account. You know, so my line of credit is costing me five and a half percent. It's making me five on my treasury bill, so it's costing me a small margin. But they're not going to call that debt right? Because they know the fight that I would put, but if it was completely empty and it wasn't touched, they'd probably call it in today's environment. So, and I know there was like a chat on our, on our signal about like that line of credit and I I haven't gotten a chance to respond to it yet, but I will like go extend it, go use it, go, go get it and go build your balance sheet with it.
1: Yeah. That was one of the interesting things is like, so, and don't keep it in the same bank because the banks will can, and that's part of in the covenants of their, their, you know, they can sweep your bank account and say, Hey, we're calling it due. You got a half a million. We sweeped it. You know, it's paid off. That's why, you know, the advice I give to people, not only get that line of credit, but then move it to another bank. And so it is like, Where'd you put that money? Great. I think that's a a fantastic hedge that you put it into treasuries because at least you're getting paid out, but it's like having that liquidity. And that's, I I think the biggest takeaway from this, this podcast, and I hope that people, and I know this is going to come out relatively soon and maybe in the next few weeks, but I love what you're talking about is strengthening your, your balance sheet. You know, we've been talking to some people about this in the past, you know, liquidity, trimming the fat, getting some, some, uh, you know, lease structures or, you know, backing out of leases. I mean, you're seeing it right now, the Facebooks of the world and you know, meta or whatever the heck they're called today, but like they're backing out of leases. Like people are backing out of these fixed expenses because they're like, Hey, and they're going to start bolstering what they call, I call their war chest. And I go, and I loved what you also talked about. The ability to thrive is the ability to bring on talent. And so if everyone else is rescinding and is not hiring or they're laying off, can you go poach top talent? And this is one of the other critical components especially in the commission and sales-based world is everybody's pipeline just is drying up or died. There's no way they would have left the place that they were if they had, you know, a million, 2 million dollars in their pipeline. There, there's almost nothing you could do to convince them to come move over to your organization. But now all of a sudden, if that's a top real estate team, that's an insurance team, that's a sales team, like whatever it is, when that pipeline dries up, now all of a sudden they poke their head up and say, hmm, what is it that I really want? And the fact that you define something that I think is so critical, and I think that you hit the nail on the head, having vision, and being able to have that clarity is that's the biggest thing I've found that most people want from a business owner is clarity of a vision. And they want to see that something's bigger than what they are. And it's like most people, and I, even your path a little bit, you wanted to be almost an entrepreneur. You wanted that support of a bigger organization. No, Most people are not going to jump into starting their own mortgage broker business. They'd rather go work for somebody that has a big vision, that they can be underneath and have a little bit of a protection and umbrella. And so this is a critical, critical opportunity to double, triple, quadruple down on your business as your entrepreneur or whatever your business ownership is to acquire top talent and positioning yourself. And we started putting out ads. We're hiring people. We're bringing in resumes. We're putting those things out there. We're running them through the process because guess what? We believe there's going to be tremendous talent acquisition strategy on top of asset acquisitions.
0: And if you've got the right talent, right, the sales will take care of themselves. The market share will be there, right? I think a lot of people forget that in a, in a recession, there's not less money in the economy. They're just, it's just hiding. And with better talent, it's easier to find. So in, in all reality, like the liquidity in your balance sheet allows for you to make proactive decisions when everybody is reacting. What, I mean, talk about a position of strength, right?
1: Dude, I love this. I have a couple quick questions I want to ask you. These are just rapid fire. They don't have to be rapid fire in, uh, in response. But the, the first one is, what is the book that you have gifted most to others? Mm,
0: I would say a business book would be the compound effect
1: by Darren Hardy. That would be it. Fantastic. What is one thing that you've invested money into that has given you the most time back?
0: (laughs) You're not gonna like this question. Uh, My boat. (laughs) Uh, I'm curious why? Um, So I love to be on the water and I love to fish. And, I'm, and, I go, and I go on my boat once or twice a month purposefully because it helps me reset and then I'm able to be more effective in my life so that I can get more, more done more effectively. So uh, taking time out of the business in that space gives me more time out of the business because I'm more effective when I'm in the business.
1: I love that. It's a great, great insight. I know one guy, he, he, did it. he said he gets a massage every week. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. You gotta do something. Cause he's
1: like, it's the time that he gets to think. He's not looking at his phone. He's not answering the monkeys that are beating on the door or trying to get in. And so it's like just the thinking time. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So final question. Uh, what is the ask of the audience? You've given tremendous amounts of nuggets of of knowledge in this, this short time period. So how can they give value back to you? And if that is either to reach out or do something, what is the ask of the audience? I'll
0: tell you what. Um, if anybody has any questions, like specifics to today, reach out. Uh, I want to, we, we cover a lot and we covered some topics that are not granular enough for you to go, okay, this, I'm doing this now. If you want to learn how to actually do it, call me. We're not going to charge you. Like, reach out to the firm. It's gfgsolutions.com. Fill out the intake questionnaire, send us a link, and in the comments, put Jake Harris Passive Wealth Podcast. And I will make sure that you have 30 minutes with one of our consultants or me uh, to talk through the actual implementation. No charge. That would be the first ask. The second ask is uh, go check out our social and also go check out my podcast. I love feedback there. right? We have a podcast. It's called the Invest the Difference podcast where we talk uh, through a lot of this stuff. And I spend it's about 30, 45 minutes every, every week on this kind of stuff. And, and, and GFG Solutions... GFG Solutions is our social. Go check us out. We drop some, some cool content on that as well. Um, so yeah, that would be my ask. Because my ask is reach out if you want us to help. We will we will kind of get the ball rolling. We won't charge. And um go check us out and give us some feedback on, on our social.
1: That's awesome, Claudia. Thank you so much. I just wanted to express some gratitude towards you. How you show up, also the vulnerability showing and sharing some of your story and and some of those those dark times. And and I know those are uh, some of my biggest fears as far as my my family's health, and my wife's health, and those other things. If if something were to happen, and so the, you know, you blazing the path forward and showing how you can take adversity and and bring it into a bigger and grander scale, and also being present to your family. So, um, I look forward to connecting up again soon. Thank you so much for your impact that you're putting out into this world. And also go thank your parents too, if they're still around dude, uh, you know, cause I know you're retiring them and go ask them why Orlando. <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome, man. Thanks for having me. This has been great. Really, really exciting stuff.
1: I hope you enjoyed that episode today on passive wealth principles podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.